Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 69th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Friday, 1st of July, and two months since my broadband started malfunctioning. It started working again last night, so hopefully it won't go down before I get this up. In this episode, we have part two of the Derek Varn interview, where we discuss the history and theories of cultural Marxism in great detail. This bumper episode also veers off into a long discussion on Black Lives Matter, how we need more than just culture wars, how's about some class wars, where we're calling the shots. We start the conversation with myself and Derek talking about accelerationism and previous guest Nick Cernicek's new book Reinventing the Future. This interview is a long one people, it was a pretty unstructured conversation. I was suffering from a flu at the time of recording, so my powers of conversation dipped a little in the middle. But Derek did his thing, and I rallied back with some counterpunches of my own in the later rounds. But before all that, I have to thank Ryan G. Amitai A. for their once-off donations, and the new monthly subscriber, Faraz Khan. Thanks a million. The show is also available on YouTube for the last few months. So if you are listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe, comment, share and all that other malarkey, as it will help spread the word. Since the last show, these poor creatures have subscribed on YouTube. MLG Addict, Comrades, Tom Donaldson, Anthony Rue, Matthew Tyson, KMLR2012, Ruby Gray, Matteo, Globaviz, Ziblofu, QQQ Ball, Jean-Seb Orr, Simon Stefanski, Carl Walker, James Hughes, Azim Amini, Our Hidden History, Thoughtful Prole, Bo Choi, Potatizen Sima, and Airmust1972. Thanks very much everybody for subscribing. And of course, to Mike RT10, who left a review over on iTunes. Now, to the interview. It's very hard to purely appropriate it as it is, so you need sort of a strategy for, for what that would be. And he kind of both acknowledged that and didn't really go into the specifics of the question. And I guess that's fair because it's a very vague question, but it, it is something I think about a lot. I mean, there's a whole lot of technology we have that's set up the way it is as a kind of you know way to make – to move uh, – abstract value around and one of the funny things about that like all of our patent culture and all that monopoly capital in a strict sense is very much pulled out of uh, a response you know a way to sort of make profits seem higher than they are but the funny thing about that is when people try to export that to a to a to a lesser developed country it doesn't work because you still have to have a huge manufacturing base to kind of move it around like that. And the only reason the profits are as high as they are is because there's a government loophole protecting them. It doesn't change the profits of the system. Like it's a redistribution mechanism. <clears throat> so if you have like patents on a thing, it basically, it's a, it's a rent. It's economic rent. 
but it only makes it say like say if you're Google, it'll make Google's profits higher, but it'll it'll be a cost to the rest of the system. You know what I mean? It's more like an economic rent is the way to think about it. I think. Well, I, I actually completely agree, and it's one of the interesting things where old school Marxist and libertarians, like you know hard right Austrian libertarians, actually agree on something: is that uh, patent law is distorting. A lot of libertarians do not believe in intellectual property. They only believe in real property. Uh, the funny thing about that is if they got rid of intellectual property, a lot of the illusions of profitability would immediately fall away. So in some ways, I'm like, go ahead. you know, Do exactly that because then I'm going to be right. But it, it's one of those situations where you know, they're being consistent with a, with a form of capital. They don't believe in the declining rate of profits. And so they think everything can be maintained, even with a whole lot of the, you know, the apparent profits in the economy. But like even if they got rid of uh, in the morning of all the intellectual property, the overall average rate of profit wouldn't decline. It would stay the same. No, it, w- it wouldn't decline and it wouldn't it wouldn't exceed. But it, I think it would make the overall rate of profit more apparent. Like it would cause some it would cause some businesses to go bust. So there might be a little bit of destruction of capital there. But like that'd be so minor. It just reduced costs for most people and increased most capitalist profits, you know. So getting on to the Nick, the acceleration thing. I think with Nick, you see, the two things he has is demand full automation. You see, with that demand there is like a demand which every capitalist would be in favor of. Every cap every capitalist would be in favor of it if they don't think long term. Well, you see, no, all capitalists, you know, in all standard economics saying there is no such thing as value. Right. And they say, you know, that there is a, a, a profit that comes from machinery and another profit that comes from from labor. So they don't they look at labor and automation fully interchangeable. But the, here's the thing is, I don't think they actually do. I think I think they say they do. They say they do. But I think in a lot of things, they I think like most capitalists, where they act like Marxists, they, it's not like they understand Marx. So it's not like they have a labor theory of value. Oh, oh no, they don't. But they don't also have a margin. They also don't actually have, as Stephen Keen, who I don't agree on a lot of things, actually proves they don't have a marginal theory of value either. They don't really have a theory of value at all. I mean, yeah, but so, so what's good about this demand full automation is that there's not and there's not a mainstream economist out there that can go against it because they all say that that would not affect profitability because capital has its rate of profit too. So you can demand full automation and you can get all the parties, say you could get political parties to push it, right? And that'll fuck the system up. <laughs> you well, know? I mean, it would really quickly. Yeah. So like, so there's, a, there's one there, there's a, there's a demand that basically capitalists can't be against because it's ideologically, it's what they believe. Yeah, we should automate. And then the second one then is the demand universal basic income is like if they go and they actually do full automation and there's not many jobs left, you're going to have to have some way to allow people to live. But you see, the, the two things together are kind of strangely because what they would actually do is bring about the destruction of capitalism. But there are two kind of things which capitalists would have to support. One, they would they do support. and One, they would have to support. It's a clever... It's a very clever combination because it's not easily attacked. It's not easily attacked by the right. 
No, well, no, the right actually supports a lot of it because I mean, you know, Alain de Bernice, who's far right, actually supports universal basic income as a way of reinvesting people into the into the ethnic state. A lot of you know, Milton Friedman was an early proponent of UBI because he thought it would free up markets instead of having the state run all these warefall systems, and it would be cheaper. But it would also it would have that play out with the market basically being a free rider and opening up. I mean, with the state basically, you know, freeing up market movement in a really strange way. I, I misstated it when I say it's free rider. Freeing up market movement by taking by not having a state involved in much of the economy, but as acting as a redistributor in a way that would move money around. That was Milton Friedman's argument. So the the right actually in some ways even came up with UBI. But you're right that it's very hard for them to oppose because it's going to be more and more needed. I know many analysts, uh, a couple of friends of mine who work with intelligence analysts uh, that I can't really talk about very much because their work is semi-classified, but they have told me in private and you know without telling me anything illegal that they actually are concerned about this. However, who the government? The is U.S. government is, is very concerned, concerned about, about it. full automation. Yeah, concerned about full automation, about what it'll do to politically because of the destabilization of the of employment. Um, and they are also trying to see if they can float something like UBI, um, even in conservative circles. I think it's I think it's very interesting, but I do think though that this idea of full automation is kind of a pipe dream. Well, it, it's it's a pipe dream to me for two reasons. One. That if you know anything, I mean, like classical value theory indicates that it would only be profitable for like a month because you would remove the ability to adjust any cost um, because maintenance for these things are going to be pretty set. Um, and so you can't squeeze any more out of them. And once you hit a sort of a price bottom that there's going to be nowhere to go, um, which is why you're right as a accelerate the contradiction strategy it actually does kind of work but also i don't know that the technology is really there <laughs> so. yeah like so like you know you you, you see these this uh, a keynesian economist that i follow his blog you know he he basically is totally anti-marxist he's actually one of these he's nearly a right-wing keynesian it's very strange but uh mm-hmm. <laughs> they do exist i think like these old-fashioned tory keynesians but um you know, he's got video, he had something where he had videos, you know, from Amazon's warehouse, how it's like fully automated. And they have these, they basically have stacks of uh, books or objects. They have like a little robot that will come along, like on a, just a little kind of a flat thing, you know, like one of those Hoover robots you see. And there'll be, it'll have some arms will drop some stuff into a basket. And there's all these boxes moving around and everything but like in the end of the day you still see there's people having to take stuff out of the boxes and put stuff in and all this so it's like it's just like another layer of efficiency you're not getting any kind of intelligence it's just it just it's just like a little bit more complicated work there's still people loads of people working in there it's not like you have a factory where there's nobody employed you know and there's not extremely high maintenance on these very complex and easy breakdownable machines you know, it's just, it's a little bit of scale, but it's just like higher productivity. It's not like no one goes to work in the morning and there's no one in the factory. Right, which is to me actually why some of this automation stuff is more dangerous than it seems. 
and this is where my, I'm going to sound like a old school hard Marxist, but because it weakens the labor force, but it does not actually ever reach the moment where it would actually remove the labor force in such a way that it would like cause full on collapse of profits. I actually think it's somewhat dangerous to do it without realizing that backdraft. Like we have. Well, to I have... think I think the thing there is, if we're good old fashioned Marxists, that if it gets to the stage where, like, say, like at the moment, what percentage of production is in these hyper, say, efficient, you know, robotic places? You know, probably a half a percent or something tiny. You know, it's going to be something tiny. Most people don't work in a place where there's fucking millions of robots. Right, but but a lot of manufacturing right now does happen, and I mean seriously, it does because these. Uh, if you look at the percentage of manufacturing done in the United States versus the percentage of people who work in manufacturing, it's it is it has really gotten the efficiency of the labor force down there where they don't need three hundred people; they only need twenty. Yeah, yeah, no, like it's gone from it might have collapsed ninety percent, but it's not gone down to one or a tenth of one percent like these places look like. You know, you're having these bottling factories now where you see it and there's like only a few random people walking around versus in the back in the day. Well, I used to work in a bottling factory. So you had lots of people on the line, you know. The thing is that if, if a lot of the economy becomes like that, you see that then there is, at the, at the moment it's only a small, tiny percent, I'd say. But if it's like 70% of the economy comes like that, then your rate of profit is going to be fucked. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I can tell you the big thing to look for if you look for the full automation of transportation, because that's still a high labor area. The train system here in London now is no train drivers. Yeah, but you still have truckers. Like, like when we have fully automated um, Google trucks, like that'll devastate the U.S. economy. That, like, even though, like, there's, it's hard to get stats on this, but the largest single employing sector, not the largest single employing jobs, those are all in retail, but the largest single employing sector is uh, trucking in the United States. What's the difference between, between sectors? Because, because it's easy to find employers. So the largest employers in the United States are going to be Walmart and the U.S. military. But if you actually look at the, the where the greatest number of people work, it's in trucking. The reason why it's harder to find that is because there's no one monolithic trucking employer. They're a mixture of contractors and employers, and they're small and regional and so you kind of just have to look at a different set of stats to find it. That's why those trucking uh, strikes, even though they were kind of right wing, were such a big deal in the States if they'd actually taken off two or three years ago, because that's a huge section of the American economy. And that's kind of stuff people don't even notice. Uh, you know, there's other things like the, the fact that there's a lot more efficiency in retail these days. And I really notice it when I go to other countries, because like, when I am in um, Korea or Egypt and I go into one of the few like big chain stores, and there aren't many in, in Africa anyway, and even in developed Africa, but uh, if you go into them, they have like a person per aisle for loss prevention, for all kinds of reasons, and also because labor is super cheap, they have a person on like every aisle in that store, and that was true in Korea too. And you go into a Walmart now in the United States, and it feels like there's 50 people running this huge-ass store. That said, I mean, I don't know. I, I just tend to not be – I'm not also like a, a, a doomsayer. I don't think this is going to – is something we can't deal with or it's going to completely collapse the economy in a way that we couldn't handle. I just don't think it's 
I, I don't, I'm not as optimistic as say Nick is on this. And I'm definitely not as the other accelerationists are like um, Nick Land or who's a right winger anyway, but you know, or some of the other theorists in this, in this field. I mean, the other thing with accelerationism is it's also associated with another tendency that's much older called impossibilism, which is a weird version of the immiseration thesis where like you just encourage capital to develop the shit out of itself so that it'll exhaust itself faster. And it was a ultra left tendency, particularly popular in Latin America. Uh, although some Trotskyist organizations have kind of sort of gone that way. And in, in the discourse, those terms are used kind of interchangeably. And they're not even really related. One is about development of technology, and it's kind of just a developmentalism. Um, I mean, the thing about accelerationism, as uh, Benjamin Noyes wrote about it, which is where it got the name from, is that it's, it doesn't really exist. I mean, I don't really know anyone who holds to the pure thesis of it. But in so much that it does exist, it's actually just a reframing of technocracy inc slash liberal socialist developmentalism if you know the history of non-marxist uh socialist movements the one of the biggest ones in the united states it sort of died out in the 50s was technocracy incorporated it actually did have some influence in france which is weird the technocracy inc wanted a uh wanted a no growth economy that was fully automated on that had no politics it's all run by engineers a lot of its theories and how you reach that was basically developing to the point of a full automation and then and then not developing anymore. So you would just you would encourage massive amounts of development so that eventually you could steady state. And it wasn't that different from some of the the Stalinist theories about reinvestment. I mean, it was it, it, their pol their politics were very different, but the the reinvestment schemes were very similar. And I mean, those people didn't totally die out. I mean, like the Venus project, which was big, like 10 years ago was kind of the last remnant of that. Um, and accelerationist as the slur goes are just sort of the same thing. I, I, I don't think that's true for Nick and Alex Williams at all. I do believe there's a bit of swallowing the Kool-Aid that artificial intelligence is, is coming. Well, I think there's a lot the singularity Kool-Aid is my, is, mind-numbing because we don't still really understand mammalian fuzzy cognition they just need to listen to chomsky talking about it and you know, just put them in their place i was listening to something and they have a they've mapped the entire neural network of this like nematode right he's got like a, a thousand neurons and they've got all the connections and you know all of them that connect to each and they they understand that his brain like they can see the model perfectly right and then when they see the guy and they see like the nematode and they give him some cheese or whatever and they say, oh, let's see what he does now. And like a few of them fire and he like puts out his hand or whatever. Like they have fucking no idea why those in the fired. <laughs> <laughs> they can see them firing and they're going, right. And it's like, now, what does that mean? They're like, no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> so like they have this human brain project now and like Chomsky's just going, what a waste of fucking money. They're going to try and model the neural networks of a brain. And it'll be the same thing. They'll just be looking at him firing going, oh, fuck. Now we have a, fire. We have a brain firing on a computer. <laughs> That's all it'll be. I follow this a lot because of my other job. Because, you, know, uh, you know, I'm a teacher by profession in both college and high school. And um, I'm really interested in neurological teaching methods. And what I've learned from studying all that is we don't know shit. And anyone who tells you we know anything is usually lying or over, over-interpreting Evidence that we don't know how to imply. Yeah, or, or looking for a grant. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, it was funny, um, five years ago, when this, like, they tried to bring this into humanities, neurological and sociobiological readings of literature and explaining, you know, why poems have a certain language because of your eye movements. And it was super popular for like two years, and then I think everyone realized it was stupid. <laughs> just and it just almost immediately died. I mean, it was like flared up. Everyone looked at it. It was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Wait, we don't really have anything here, and it went away. Most trends in, in literary studies last decades and are very hard to shake. So it shows up in my life in weird places. But so there's that, and you know, it's hard to even categorize all that. The the, the thing is, like that term. Like, what Nick and Alex mean by it is one thing. And Nick and Alex are actually very bright, and they're onto a lot of stuff. I don't agree with them, but I see what they're doing. What someone like Nick Land means by that is another. What Benjamin Noyes did by critiquing that is another thing. And the kind of tendency there that's developmentalist tendency, you, you see it come up over and over again. It comes up in, in the Soviet context. It comes up again after 1968, 69. And it kind of came up immediately after the failure of Occupy. Um, basically, whatever folk politics, as what Nick would call it, uh, you know, just standard strategies of the left kind of fail, you see that flare back up as an answer. And then I guess people get frustrated with the technology not developing fast enough or not figuring out how to politically leverage um, these demands. And it's usually just sort of like fades out into an operating assumption again. And it's sort of in the background, but it's it's not going to dominate as much. And that goes through cycles. Uh, uh, that's not unheard of. Um, you know, uh, tangentially, the, the, the pairing to this, another thing written about by Benjamin Noyes, uh, is communization theory, which is an old theory, kind of comes out of Bordiga circles, uh, so you'd think I'd like it. It talks a lot about the real subsumption of the working class and the inability of the working class to sort of break with itself or abolish itself. If you read in notes, you know, the, the British New York Journal, that's all about this. Uh, the, the, the thing that, that this gets accused of that I think is almost fair, not quite fair, I mean, there's, it actually is more complicated, is that this is flirting with catastrophism or even sort of like semi-primitivism as an answer to the crisis of capital. Their argument is that the only way to break capital is to lay down the the conditions of communism not as collectivization but as actual conditions for when a crisis or collapse happens and so you have the preconditions there for it to manifest in the chaos of a collapse so it's kind of a a little bit of a miseration theory it's a little bit of uh you know prefabrication theory there was a lot of that around like the disaster like the crisis in argentina there's a lot of people saying, oh, look, it's brilliant. Now we can uh, barter or something. You know? <laughs> this is the way forward. Now, now, I have known, like, the thing about communization theory is it's actually a super contentious field within itself. So it's very hard to, to summarize. But I have noticed that it also, like accelerationism, tends to come up, you know, post-1950 when another left-wing popular movement fails. So it's it officially developed in the 1970s around um, the end of the Situationist movement. Um, There's a lot of the people who were in it also came out of that. Uh, some of the people uh, who were in the first wave of communization became full-out primitivists. Um, 
which I'm not saying is a condemnation of it, but it, it does sort of show you that its operating assumptions is that there is no politically political way out. Um, something I might even agree with in some ways, but their next assumption is therefore we must go to this super economic determinism and our politics is just laying the groundwork for when that happens and the working class or any number of classes actually not just working class and communization theory to be able to take that over. So that's two answers that are, seem to come up a lot right now. If I had, you know, if my only options were on this palette of these two things, uh, in addition to the standard left, I would obviously pick accelerationism. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's fair. Now, what Doug brought up is cultural Marxism. And cultural Marxism is the Marxist shift to culture and sociology outside of economics and uh, real politics. And I wanted to really talk about that history, its term as a right-wing term of abuse, the different theories on the right about it, um, how it relates to these other trends. Um, and I think it does. But the first thing I say, I don't blame the Frankfurt School for cultural Marxism. One, while you can definitely accuse later Frankfurt theorists of being totally obsessed with culture, particularly people like uh, Habermas and in some ways, Marcuse, the Frankfurt School was not as monolithically coherent as people make it out to. Marcuse was a, was a Maoist, more or less. Adorno was probably something like a Trotskyist with a very strong Viverian bent. And Horkheimer was, was almost, could be said to be a conservative Marxist in that he even supported interventions in Vietnam against Stalinist and whatnot. But they aren't even the first generation of the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School starts out a generation before that with a bunch of Marxist sociologists kind of funded by the government. And they, they sort of want to apply Marxism to sociology to create a more coherent sociological notion and not just let Weberian analysis and a more conservative sociological analysis coming out of France to dominate the discussion. So you're saying uh, uh, Weberian? That's after the sociologist Max Weber. Max Weber. And what was the, what was his kind of thesis? Oh, there's so many theses there, but he talks a lot about the different kinds of rationality developing out of Enlightenment, the relationship between politics and religion and economy, and he tends to put ideas first rather than materiality. I actually think Weber was right about a lot, but was his order of operations was wrong or at least too simple. Like he thinks Protestantism produces capitalism, for example. And I don't think that's entirely false. But why that developed for me has more material than ideal reasons. Like there's more going on than just wars of religion that lead that to coming into being. Whereas Weber would just stop at the ideas. Uh, Weber's like demarcations about different kinds of rationality all being subsumed into one kind of uh, instrumental rationality under late capital. Uh, I totally think that's a really important insight. So explain explain that. Well, I mean, he even names them. But so there are different kinds of rational functions. That, I mean, rational just mean applying logic to things. But they're, what they're aiming to do can be quite different. So abstract reason is very different from instrumental instrumental reason, although they both lose log logic. Instrumental reason assumes you know what the good is, and the good is about something that you can produce. That's very conducive to capitalism. 
But the Enlightenment also had just like pure reason and other forms of practical reason as well as sociological and mythical reasoning. And they really broke it down to different ways of using reason, which is just different ways of doing systematic thinking using logic. What Baber traces is over time that gets more and more focused solely on, you know, technology and engineering and the and even social logics get seen in this technological and engineering light, and he called that instrumental reason um, to treat reason as an instrument to produce something, as opposed to reason, qua reason, or social reason, or any other of those kinds of things. And he sort of maps that out over the period of the Enlightenment. Horkheimer and Adorno picked this up in their dialectic of the Enlightenment. They use this mixed with Marx to go back and read the Enlightenment in terms of the development of capitalism, which Marx doesn't do. I mean, Marx is a child of the Enlightenment. He has a lot of Enlightenment assumptions. And basically, Adorno and Horkheimer say, you know, you're not wrong, Marx, but you didn't go deep enough. You stopped at the economy. You didn't go back into the Enlightenment itself and the contradictions that were there. That's all fine and good. I think they tend to see things way more monolithically um, than is historically actually viable. You know, I, I talked to you last time we talked about the fact that there were other modernities developing that sort of failed, but that were developing like French absolutism um, and stuff like that, uh, that didn't ha wouldn't have had the same conceptions of, of instrumental rationality coming out of the Enlightenment. But I do think people should definitely read the, the dialectic of the, uh, of the Enlightenment. They also talk about instrumental rationalities like kind of shadow side being extreme emot emotivism and and uh, the, the uh, you know treating human beings as things. Um, they, they even trace that that sort of flip that dialectical inversion of instrumental rationality to Nazism. But all that said, that's one branch of a call that came out of Lenin in the early. 20s, And it's not even the only form of, quote, cultural concerns of Marxism that existed in that time. The other major, and I think is far more what we think of as cultural Marxism, because it has far more influence on liberalism. And when conservatives say cultural Marxism, they mean both Marxism and all forms of liberalism that exist, except the ones that they hold on to and don't recognize as liberalism. So I'll give you the example Lenin said that you needed to understand all the classes to really start to undo them because the class structure in Russia and in China and where the sexual revolution were, were not actually truly capitalist. And the, you know, the majority of the armies that they were able to use to have these revolutions, particularly in China, were not even workers' armies. They were peasant armies for the most part. And even, in, even with the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks, you know, their revolution was basically a coup of another revolution – but their first revolution in Russia was a class revolution against the ancient, regime, the ancient regime and some capitalist. And then the Bolsheviks were able to kind of use their power in the Soviets and their power amongst a lot of the uh, agricultural peasants to sort of wedge in and take that over. The Chinese revolution was almost all peasants. That was the radicalized class. It was the majority population. The quote-unquote bourgeois revolution in China was under Chiang Kai-shek, lasted like, I don't know, five years. And it wasn't enough to really build up a proletariat the way we think of it. Anyway, Lenin, that's after Lenin. But Lenin, even before all this happens, kind of sees a problem here. Um, he was responding to the council communists at the time. Um, the council communists and 
get mentioned in ultra left circles a lot. But one of the things that people don't talk about about them is they were obsessed with the pure proletariat culture. All right. They were trying to figure out how to use that culture to wedge in and, and activate the proletariat without, you know, without like cynical political manipulations, which they thought the more mainstream Marxists were doing. So they were obsessed with understanding workers' culture. So they wanted to kind of shape things in a non, such not, less coercive fashion through culture. Right. And, so, and also just like through using to kind of having communism adopt to workers' culture. Now, so like you would go and you study whatever the, the working class was doing and you kind of like build the party around meeting those needs and perpetuating that culture itself. All right. As a, so that people would see, you know, defending communism as defending their identity and self-interest. This was a council communist idea. Now, people never talk about this when they talk about council communism anymore. In fact, the only person I've read that's written about this since maybe the 80s that I know of is Russell Jacobi. And he mentions it in the middle chapters of his book, Dialectic of Enlightenment, and starts quoting people. And I had never even heard this until I read that. And then went and checked it out, and he was completely accurate. It just doesn't get mentioned anymore. Lenin was responding to this, and his response was, to understand this, we need to understand the various classes, and we need to understand how their culture works. So we put out a call to all the communist parties to start this kind of culture analysis. This particularly took in Italy. Now, there's a reason why it particularly took in Italy. Uh, the, the, the Hegelian tradition in Italy was the strongest of anywhere outside of Germany. And there was also a group of cultural socialists um, who were part of the young socialist movement and even some of the early communist movement, um, who were opposed by people like uh, Amigo Bodiga, who really tried to to use cultural influences to sort of get socialism off the ground and, again, using identity. A Gramsci sort of trying to bridge these guys. Because what was happening in the, in the 20s and 30s is these culturally concerned socialists we're moving more and more towards fascism. You could argue that um, Mussolini himself came out of that school, but they, they largely came from this guy uh, whose name was Casca, and he was a major part in the Young Socialist Movement. And Gramsci thought, you know, in Bolshevizing the party, we also need to pull a lot of these people back. And Lenin sent out this sort of uh, call to go and study all the classes, not as we think they should be, but how they actually live, to go and do something like sociology. Um, I, I don't know for sure that's where the Frankfurt School come from, but I suspect it. But I know for sure that's where Gramsci got his education for his studies of cultural hegemony. Now, Gramsci's ideas of cultural hegemony are interesting because they're super damn influential outside of Marxist circles. They're super influential in liberal circles, and they're also super influential in conservative circles. Why? Well, one, his, his focus on culture and the, the dominant, being able to dominate cultural trends to maintain your own power kind of resonates with, with conservative interests anyway. So when the cultural wars came up, a lot of these people read the prison notebooks in college and went, oh, this is why we need to really push these culture wars. And it overlapped with people like Leo Strauss who said the same thing, like, Leo Strauss was like, oh, we need to use, you know, religion and stuff to keep public virtue up, even though he was a diehard atheist. And he thought, you know, we could save liberalism from itself by by embracing its more virtuous, quote unquote, attributes. He was arguing with another conservative, Carl Smith, 
Um, we tend to see Leo Strauss as a conservative now, and he is, but only in the sense that he's a conservative from, from liberalism as opposed to Carl Smith, who is something else. This was really easy to overlap with Gramsci, who argued that how, you know, the working, the uh, bourgeois and the, the, the kind of failed aristocracy was able to maintain itself was control over bourgeois culture. And these theories of cultural hegemony were really good for that. I also kind of think cynically that it's just something that's really easy for academics to get onto because it's easy to study. You just have to read books. And Gramsci's such a good writer he sort of dominates this Italian tradition, even though if you look at what he actually did, he completely failed. I mean, he almost destroyed the Italian Communist Party, but he definitely got himself killed, more or less. So you have a critique of, of myself and Doug's conversation was that we got some of the historical records slightly wrong, like you're after discussing here and the origins of cultural Marxism. What is the other critique you have? Well, there, there's two things that bother me about talking about it in this way. One is that I think Doug's legitimate concern is political determinism. And by that, we mean the idea that controlling the, the, the culture of politics can change the entirety of society. This is a move away from both Leninist and anarchist ideas of dual power. It's a move away from total social revolution. Even Stalinists and stuff did not actually believe in politically determined social change. Um, what, is what do you mean by politically determined social change? The idea that if you control the state, you can control most of the elements of society by controlling the state and thus rearrange the society from totally from the top. Um, obviously, you would need control of the state eventually to really maintain anything. But even old Bolsheviks did not completely buy that you could, could just take over the state and have what you wanted. Which is why Stalin started coming up with his, his, his three stages of revolution, which were political, economic, cultural, and that order, which is where Mao gets his stuff from. You know, the Council Communists thought you needed to work on all of it kind of simultaneously. Uh, Lenin sort of thought you needed a form of due power, which did involve cultural stuff and preemptive conditions, but also involved seizing the state, both to smash it and use its apparatuses. So you have a lot of theories about this. Increasingly, after I think the 40s, you see more and more focus on just the state. You see more and more parties trying to either violently seize the state or control or, you know, induce a political revolution by just controlling a nation state um, once you liberate it from colonialism. So you had all those wars of national liberation or you have a lot of focus on electoral politics almost solely are electoral politics with a non-electoral arm. The, a lot of where you see this now is a lot of what I think Marxist opportunism to sort of like swoop in and adopt and mix with liberal dialogues. Part of what makes this origin on the right, and why this is popular on the right, and I want to talk about its history there, because I actually know it, is that... The right can use this to conflate liberalism and Marxism as one thing and oppose all liberalism it doesn't like by red baiting. And how it can do this is sort of a conflation of ideas that are interrelated but not the same. So, we t you know, a lot of people talk about Maoism in the relationship to a lot of liberal identitarianism or left liberal identitarianism. And there is a relationship. But the relationship is two-way, actually, and that's most people don't realize this. Um, Mao himself in the university 
he didn't read Marx until like after the revolution, if he read him at all. He read uh, Stalin and Lenin during his revolution. Before that, he mostly was familiar with Kropotkin and a bunch of uh, sort of radical liberals from Russia that he had read in, in translation in college. That's a big part of what's going on there. And so these kind of identity liberalism ideas, these national liberal ideas, were in circulation in a lot of these key figures even before they became Marxist, and they sort of stay on. And they're picked back up by, by radicals who, coming out of liberal traditions themselves in the 1950s and 60s. Um, conservatives saw this. Their narrative for this is interesting because I don't think it was entirely wrong. Now, they kind of disagree on some key points, and there's sort of like four main theories of, quote, cultural Marxism, unquote. The, their foundational text for this is after the Soviet Revolution, the working class in the West and in North America never did what it was supposed to do. And so the left had to figure out a way to explain that, why workers' culture didn't do what it wanted it to, why it, didn't stay, why it seemingly didn't stay left-wing. They said, you know, a bunch of – they basically posited a conspiracy. It even gets tied into the CIA, and unfortunately, the Frankfurt School did get some CIA money. Uh, indirectly, but they did. They they have grounds for this conspiracy of a bunch of elite Marxists who were somehow tied to the FDR administration, like shifting over and trying to dominate culture and destroy Western culture from within by these cultural critique things. They also blame postmodernism on that, and you know they conflate it all together. That that all being ridiculous, being aside, the the, the truth to the why didn't the workers do what we wanted them to do? And all these other ideas coming from that, I think is actually not entirely wrong. Uh, I mean, because Maoism is obsessed with that. You know, that's where the ideas of labor aristocracy come from. Communization theories is obsessed with that. That's where their, their application of real subsumption comes from. Real subsumption is the idea that the conditions of, the, of capitalism made it impossible to to overthrow it because it's limited what you could do by subsuming the ideas of the working class to capital. It's actually a very complicated concept, and I'm not even sure I'm explaining it right there, but that's generally it. It is a concept in Marx, but it's really expanded on in communization writings. They, they tend to say somewhere around 1914, like right before the Soviet Revolution, which I think is really convenient, the, uh, the, the way material culture developed in capitalism made, made thinking outside of it impossible because of the, develop, the development of technology and what that rendered to the general subsistence skills of the working class, et cetera, and so forth. A lot of these communization theorists actually do pretty good history. Uh, so I do suggest people read them, but this, this is what they think. Uh, the cultural Marxism answer is that the working class never could get cultural hegemony in either a Leninist party or the working class councils needed to somehow, you know, get worker culture dominant. And to do that, you had to destroy bourgeois culture some way. Um, particularly at Frankfurt School, outside of Marcuse and the later people in the 80s, really did still ground most of what they were doing in material analysis. Like, the culture industry is about the production of culture physically and in, in an industrial slash mass communications model. It's not just about 
culture qua culture. The same thing with Walter Benjamin's writing on art is about that as well. Uh, so you have a very material basis for it. Doug pointed that out too. And Gramsci, you kind of do have material basis for it um, because he's trying to talk about the way working class and aspirational politics actually work. And he is trying to do something like sociology, but it gets, it's very abstract very quickly. And he sort of sees Marxism, Marx as actually sort of a problem to Marxism. If you read his essay, Lenin versus Marx, he sort of, or Lenin versus capital, he sees capitalism as way too economically deterministic and that we needed to look more on cultural elements. So that's real. I mean, that's not even false. But if you think about all these things together, what the right did with that is it gives you a good smear. Now, one group of the right, the, the most famous, quote-unquote famous of which is the uh, uh, Kevin MacDonald, they're basically anti-Semites. They think this is a Jewish conspiracy to destroy Christian culture. And the reason why they tend to focus on the Frankfurt School, one, is the tangential tie to the CIA, and two, is that if you're, you can say they're Jews. Now, it's weird because calling Adorno a Jew because his father's Jewish and calling a Lenin a Lenin Jew because his father has some Jew, Jewish because his father had some Jewish ancestry is very strange because neither Jews nor them would have considered themselves Jewish at all. It would be like me calling Adorno's mother was Catholic, and and it would be like people calling me like a papist, a, a papist because my mom's Catholic. Um, are, are me a Jew because, you know, my father has some Jewish ancestry, but I, like, I'm not halakhically a Jew. Jewish community would not take me. Few communities would, Derek. Yeah, that's true. Even Marxists don't like me very much. Um, so y you have that theory. You have a theory by Paul Gottfried that Marxism was essentially too conservative for the way liberalism was going and that cultural Marxism was a way to sort of survive in a more liberal environment. Give me, that, give me that theory again. That Marxism was too conservative because of its focus on economic determinism. Um, and that for it to survive post-1950, it had to adopt to liberal conditions and liberal concerns about culture. And thus cultural Marxism was sort of a detente between Marxism and liberalism. Now, Paul Gottfried is a paleoconservative. He, he hates Nazis. But he's written in praise of Mussolini. I mean, you know, so and he thinks liberal multiculturalism may be the worst thing that ever happened to the universe. He's actually he he was he was he was a student of Marcuse and actually even worked with a lot of the Frankfurt School generation who ran Telios magazine. And a lot of what he says that they believe is actually really is what they believed. So he thought that particularly the third generation of the Frankfurt School and a lot of the other Marxists, um, particularly the Maoists in the United States, had to make concessions to liberalism to both survive and to attract people to a radical movement. And cultural Marxism is not actually Marxism at all, which is something Doug would agree with, actually, but is a weird detente to sort of save national liberalism and Marxism by combining them to a third thing that is neither. He, he talks about this in two books, After Liberalism and The Strange Death of Marxism. He also relates this to the shift of class concerns from a bourgeois class concern to a managerial class concern, picking up on the theories of James Burnham. 
the burnt Trotskyist who became a leader of the paleoconservatives, he thinks that this has to do with actually a stage in capitalism itself. And then the last view is that Marxism was always just a form of liberalism anyway, and this is just a, a move away from the economic concerns after it failed economically in the Soviet Union. This is a view held by some military historians who were also paleoconservatives. The, the funny thing about this is these, these, this same group of people would also call neoconservatives cultural Marxists because of their relationship to Trotskyism. So this is, not, this is not just conservative, it's a very specific brand of conservatism. Now, how it's used now, and it's increasingly used on the right, it's just sort of a generic, these people are weird, it's probably Mar cultural Marxism's fault, but I'm just spelling out the original theories. Uh, Doug's articulation of it kind of sounds very similar to Paul Godfrey's, doesn't it? I think what that misreads is that Marxism was never just economically deterministic. Particularly if you don't think there's a, like I told you about the intellectual schism between ideology and fetish, but if you, if you are a Marxist humanist, for example, and you think the early writings of Marx and the non-published writings of Marx are valid, okay, you can't just think it's all economics. In fact, you have to go so far as to say the, the, this, the distinction between economics and politics and culture is a false distinction of capital itself. So trying to replace political determinism with economic determinism is still actually fundamentally accepting capitalist categories. Say that again. Okay. So if you buy the idea that, for example, political economy as opposed to economics and politics, that the idea that the economy is separate from politics and that politics is separate from the economy is a fundamental capitalist-serving delusion. And if you go back and read, say, the German ideology of Grandessa, it's pretty clear that Marx thought that there was other things going on because economics is itself just a reification of social relationships. So to say that culture and economy and politics are separate can only make sense in capital because they're not in most other systems. So to move from economic determinism to political determinism, or vice versa, from political determinism to economic determinism, is itself a problem under Marxism because you're still accepting capitalist category breaks that aren't really real because all of this is an obfuscation of social relationships. Like, I agree with you, but Marx didn't do much work in, in cultural stuff. He did not. Engels did. And some of, the, you know, some of the writings I have the most problem with in Marxism come from Engels writing about this stuff. But that's who did it. Read Marx's writing. Uh, Marx writing on America is surprisingly skimpy, except for his letters to Lincoln. Engels talks all about America. And like, how much of the same hymn sheet would I haven't read any Engels now? Well, I mean, Engels, for example, when he talks about women, he, he it's all about this, and he talks about women as the first oppressed class, and the first division of labor, and the first oppressed class are are women, and it's based off this theory. I actually think he might have been onto something there, but. He also talks about, uh, you know, why, why there's no labor parties in the Americas, but it's actually kind of cultural and related. But it's not totally cultural. It's also related to, to land ownership. A lot of Maoists pick up on this writings. But Marx doesn't talk about this stuff. Marx, Marx was concerned with, first, Hegelianism and trying to fix it, and then with capitalism and its problems.
Like, that's what he was concerned. He was kind of obsessively one-tracked and thorough. Whereas Ingalls wrote about all kinds of shit. I mean, there's even stuff that Ingalls wrote about Lemurians and stuff. I mean, you know, Ingalls is all over the place. Um, you know, Ingalls tried to reconcile Hegel with physics. So, I mean, you know, this was his concern. I mean, it would be like us trying to take the Marx mathematical manuscripts and make something out of them. It's just weird. Stuff that most people ignore. It just conceptually, even if you follow capital, doesn't stand to reason that you could separate economics and culture and politics in a social revolution, which is why I talk about dual power so much and people like Doug don't as much. And that's my, those are my two critiques. One, it misunderstands the history. And two, it actually accepts some kind of right-wing categories that are problematic. Now, that said, I still think there is some truth to what Paul Godfrey said and to what Doug says, uh, to what some people around Spike Magazine say. Don't get me started on Spike Magazine. Right. But their talk about cultural Marxism and the focus on culture being a, a problematic conception, I actually do think it's real. It is a problem. But I don't think you can fix it by just flipping it, you know, like... What do you mean? Like, why is it a problem? Why does it matter that an elite 10% is more diverse? Or an elite 1% is more diverse? Why does it matter who we cast in movies? I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but why does it matter so much that, pre that we spend so much time, so much of our politics talking about this? I post something about declining rates... I can tell you, for example. I post something about declining rates of profits on Facebook. Or I post something about... Ghost in the Shell casting Scarlett Johansson. Guess what everybody's going to talk about? Well, I know what I'd be talking about. Yeah, you'd be talking about Falling Rate of Profits. And, and so would the people around a lot of my podcasts. But the, but the, vast, the vast amount of humanity. Is going to be talking about why aren't they casting an Asian actress? What's this cultural appropriation? Even though Ghost in the Machine itself is a hybrid of... Philip K. Dick and Japanese concerns and isn't from one culture anyway and was built for a global market in the first place and thus they animated the main character to have no identifiable race. So, you know, it's, it's like th this kind of stuff is, is, is what people seem to really care about right now. Also, it's less technical. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. It's very, it's very easy for somebody to read that article as a standalone article and be, be impressed by its argument. Or, or, or even think it like even me like I I end up commenting on it because I think it's stupid, but actually is a problem in and of itself because I'm perpetuating their conversation. It's dumb in the first place, um, <laughs> which I have to try to remind myself like I don't need to comment on on every one of these things that I think doesn't work because that leads to nowhere too. So I don't think Doug is entirely wrong, but I do think it's kind of it's kind of like the way he presented it anyway was a little bit unnuanced. And Doug and I come from the same sort of background on this. I mean, he hasn't read a lot of the same things as me. He's read, he's more into Zizek and more familiar with that than I am. But we do agree that the Frankfurt, that there is a focus on culture increasingly in Marxist circles. There's a focus on sort of uh, infotainment, and there's an opportunist attempt to sort of align with left liberals all the time, whether it be on race issues and stuff like that. I'm not even saying that's in bad faith necessarily. It's not that, you know, Marxists should not care about racial justice or gender. I mean, we, we should. But it's just the way we manifest it seems to play at this superficial level of culture. And, you know, my reason for that is actually just basic materialism. It's easy. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of work. You don't have to do a whole lot of reading or know a whole lot or 
go out and meet people to even do that. I mean, it's not even like at this level of culture, you're not even doing sociology. You're just doing cultural commentary off of media because it's readily available. And that's depressing. And, you know, but that's where we are. The, the bigger thing for me and, you know, the, the, uh, the closest thing I can get to a positive political conception about this, and, we, you know, you know how, how iffy I am on ever saying the P word, positive and political together. Oh, oh that P word, yeah. Yeah, positive and political together. The other P words are fine. Um, is that we don't have really, we need to rethink a way to organize and to focus on culture. And sadly, the groups that are best at this are creepy. You know, I said this over and over again. The people who understand dual power the most are Islamists. Because, you know, what they do when they try to, like, control a political situation, they go and build schools and actually try to provide the things that the state can't provide before they even do anything. They have the long game. They have a very long game. And trying to get Marxists to think that way again is very hard. And, it, again, I'll give Nick and – to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation – I'll give Nick and uh, and Alex real props for trying to move the popular mainstream, you know, radical left. And mainstream radical left seems like a contradiction, but you know what I mean. Because, you know, people with my ideas are a margin of a margin of a margin back in a direction that does play a long game. I may not agree with how they do it, but, for example, their critique of protest culture being basically just a habit we have – I completely agree with. If you're if you're like a proper revolutionary, there's only a long game. There's no short game. Right. It is a it is a hard sell, right? I mean, and you got to give the Islamists this: they have God to justify their long game in a way we don't. But <laughs> but um, because you know when you're trying to say like we're making the world for everybody, but we're probably not. Even if we win, we're not going to really succeed for a hundred years. That's hard to sell people on. Um, so you gotta have to have a dual vision of what you gotta do, but it's also, it seems to me right now, and I don't know why, maybe you have theories on this, it's very hard to keep people, not just in the long game, but to think about a dual vision. Like, for example, I support most strikes in teachers' unions and stuff like that. I actually think unions are a problem. I don't think that they are inherently corrupt, but I think their current context has been They've been so either subsumed in the government apparatus in, in Europe or they're so depowered by things like Taft-Hartley in North America that they don't – they can't really do much. Also, they're not designed for the way the current working class is split up. They're designed for high concentrations and single industries that you can really mobilize about. Yeah, they're designed for the coal industry and for the railways. They're not designed for the modern workplace. Right, and a lot of the unions that survive are either professional union guilds, like te like the public sector unions in the States, or like electricians unions, which are basically a way to ensure licensing, and they're actually a form of monopoly. They basically work like guilds. Or they're really failing. You know, they just can't subsist. So... When I, I want to talk to unions, I want to, you know, support these these teachers unions because I don't disagree with their and their, their short game goals in a way. But in the same way, I say teachers unions because that's like the only strike that really happens anymore. But I also have to like be honest that like part of our problems on the left, uh, our immediate problems on the left is like how do you how do you empower in the states teachers unions without also empower police unions, who are a big damn problem, particularly if you're black. 
But, I mean, really for everybody. Because police unions hide, hide, actively hide police brutality. They're part of the reason why, for example, the United States doesn't really have a official public database on police killings, right? And this is, and, 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 you know, this is even knowing that 80% of police killings are actually, or at least 80% are actually, you know, against armed criminals. So, it, but the unions don't want those stats out there. So you have to have news agencies do it, and they have different criterion, and some of them are more questionable than others. But they're the only people doing it. Like the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which keeps statistics on everything else, won't touch it, and part of it's police union pressure. So how do you deal with that? And you have to think about new ways to organize the working class across class lines. But trying to get people to talk that way and really think about what that would mean, it's like pulling freaking teeth. Because what they immediately come up with is a political party. But the political party, as we've had a long discussion about before, has the same problems. It, it, its function has changed in the last hundred years. And it's very hard to do what a lot of people on the left who want to use models from a hundred years ago want it to do. Political parties now are more about aggregating power if you actually already have it and bunching money together and making it easier for lobbyists to find people. I mean... So that's not going to really be your answer either. You have to think about some new thing. I mean, sometimes I get kind of reminiscent about something like the IWW as a way to do it. But even then, I'm probably just being, you know, desperate. So these are things we really have to think about. All this talk about culture doesn't really get us there unless we also talk about economics at the same time and we talk about their interrelationship. Which is why I'm hesitant to just call out, quote, cultural Marxism as useless or bad, even if I agree that this focus on culture that we have right now is totally deleterious. Totally deleterious? Totally deleterious. Why totally? Um, because, for one thing, it makes solidarity very hard. Uh, for example, yeah, I've written a lot about privilege. I've gone, I talked about standpoint theory and... The, the Invisible Knapsack article, where privilege comes from. Um, and the idea there is actually pretty legitimate in some ways as a teaching tool about the way uh, accumulated wealth and social capital work. But once you start using it to explain social divisions instead of a metaphor for social divisions, what you immediately get is a sort of irreconcilable idea that my culture will always oppose yours. And that if... We make things better for, for workers. Majority of workers are white. Well, black people are probably going to get screwed over on that too. Unfortunately, particularly in the United States, the actual history of left-wing movements doesn't help because they were pretty damn racist in their actual operations, particularly before the 1960s. You know, and sadly, the only party in the United States that ever focused on dual power from the left point of view was the Black Panthers. So... <laughs> It, you know, and so you have a legacy there of associating that with one racial group. Now, the Black Powers weren't actual racial, the Black Panthers weren't actual racial nationalists, but their successor group is, um, even though they've been denounced by the surviving members of the Panthers and stuff like that, but that, that's really the only legacy you have. The uh, SPA, um, the Socialist Party of America, which is the other big party you talk about historically, never was coherent on that. And 
you know, couldn't decide how it really stood on the quote-unquote Negro problem. And that really limited it, its ability to spread with the labor movement in the South. Those uh, racial issues were really how they completely stopped unionism from ever taking off in the South in the first place, which is why a lot of Southern states didn't, haven't revoked the powers of unions to collectively bargain. They stopped it from ever happening in the first place by playing white and black workers off each other and making sure they didn't trust each other enough to ever work together. And in some ways, when I start hearing stuff about appropriating culture and that being the main focus of what we're talking about, I see the same thing happening. It's very hard. In the United States right now, um, the group that is declining the most rapidly is working class whites, actually. That's still, they're still relatively doing better than, say, male male, uncollege educated black people by fair margins, but their life expectancies drop like 10 years in 10 years. I mean, it's objectively very bad. And to keep on telling them that they're super privileged, even if they are, you know, in, in one sense of their life, it completely ignores the ways they aren't in every other sense of their life. And it makes someone like Donald Trump really appealing. And I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump has created by the liberal left, but I am saying it doesn't help. You know, um, another example is a lot of these narratives about police violence. If, if, if a lot of the poor white community understood that while the black community is way more likely to be a target than they are, they're still pretty damn big targets. There's still a fairly large pro proportion of police killings and these idea that white people don't have to feel for the kids from cops is actually just objectively false would really help get a lot of stuff done about the, you know, of four black people. But because we can't say that narrative right now, you can't do anything because you can't get it electorally. You can't get organizational grounds for it. And I think, and this is where I get really cynical. You, you, black lives matter in the last two years went from being a street movement to being a campus movement. And I think that has a lot to do with what I'm talking about because campus movements don't need broad bases. They can survive off, I mean, this is super cynical, but it's also true. You can survive off university funding through diverse groups by various forms of uh, non-discrimination clauses. So, you know, these groups can actually even get school money to do what they're doing. Whereas a street movement can't do that. It has to have a large, broad base or it can't survive. The BLM has survived, but it's moved increasingly onto campuses among young people because A, they have the time to devote to it, and B, they don't need the money for their operations. But it also means their sets of concerns and their rhetoric cell has changed, and it's even when they're legitimate, like I think they were kind of in Missouri, to outsiders it just seems like asking for an increase in admin to get your way culturally, and that just isn't trusted in a time where everybody seems to be doing less well economically. Do you think if you were black, you would think the same way about cultural Marxism? And I think if I was black, I probably wouldn't know any of this. Which, and being as me, me owning up to real privilege. I mean, like, I come from a working class white, you know, mixed race, but white identified background. And, you know, my, my outcomes and the outcomes of black members of people, you know, black family members that I happen to be related to, even, even if somewhat distantly, I know are different. So... How they feel. I mean, to be honest with you, most of the black people I know don't trust politics at all, BLM or anything. But, you know, like the thing is with us critiquing something like cultural Marxism is that like, you know, like, why can we say we're able to critique 
you know, economic system, say, more priority over, say, the political system or the cultural system. With what we're saying, what we're saying is that Marx or Engels would have thought that these were all of a one. Right. Well, it's very hard for for anybody to get a full to full grasp of it. And I, if I was a black student who was up and coming and aspirational, like I was as a you know working class white dude, I would probably do the same thing they're doing. And I actually don't even begrudge them that. I just think structurally, it's a difference. But it's kind of a difference between you know to put it in game theoretical terms. It's a difference between an individual, what would be smart for an individual to do and what's smart for an entire population to do is quite different. One of the things I want people to kind of think about when I say this, and I don't get the chance to say this enough, I do not blame a lot of these activists for doing what they're doing. I'm trying to get it to think about how that's not productive. I'm not even saying that I wouldn't do it. I mean, when I was in, when I was in college, you know, in my in, in undergrad, I was I was a, Trotsk, a Chomskyite liberal, like everybody else I knew. And then when I got fed up with it, I became a conservative for a while. But the other thing, though, you see, is that uh, you you think it's not in their interest, or as in you know that it's narrowly in their interest, but not it's systemically in their interest. But the thing is that I think most of these people who are involved in Black Lives Matter and all these different things, you know, they're not communists. <laughs> You know, right? They're, well, most of them are liberals. Exactly. So it's actually, and most of them believe in capitalism. And, and yeah, also, so it probably like, is the the logical action for them, given what they, well, kind of what their what their what their belief system is, not what their belief system right. might be if they were aware of other things. You know, right. so it, it, right, you're exactly right about that. It is both. It is both. It is both locally adaptive and logically consistent with other beliefs. No, what's interesting to me is like anti-capitalism used to be pretty huge in the black community. At one point, I didn't even know this, but even in the deep south, about 6% of the black population agreed with the Black Panther's views. And it wasn't even over uh, national self-determination. It was also on the delirious effects of capitalism. And that was only 40 years ago. One of the things that isn't talked about (laughs) – is because of the gutting of the welfare state, particularly after the Watts riots, the, the main social welfare for African-Americans, particularly in the South, was the church. Again, dual power. They understand it. We don't. And it didn't make them conservative in the sense that conservative in capital, they're not. They're not, you know, most of them are Democrats. So the, the black community can be a little hard to gauge on things like uh, gay marriage and gay rights actually because of the influence of the church. But it's not like, like it, it, there's no uniform opinion on that. But the, you know, beyond those things, most of, most of those people are good Democrats. They, you know, they believe in something like FDR, but this time not just for white people. You know, what we need to say to them is like, we completely understand that. And we understand why you don't trust us. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, look at these objective facts. Like, even even as the you know the the overall diversity of the elite has gotten, it has gotten more diverse. It really has. You know, and it, the 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 health outcomes and and stuff for black people have kind of stopped declining. They haven't improved, and they were still the hardest hit by the by the recession in two thousand seven, and they still haven't recovered from it. I mean, you know, it's the people who got hit by that. Where the black the, the people got hit by hit the, mar- the hardest, the black community that did have jobs, 
that not the ones in the gray market and the and you know um southern whites actually were disproportionately hit by it because a lot of them worked in manufacture manufacturing particularly for housing that's where we are it's very hard to say that and also like say like i get where you're coming from and the thing is you know i kind of do get where they're coming from i i grew up in a city that that you could literally cross the street you, you know about this from london you, except it's not black people it's it's uh pakistanis usually but there's like one side of the road is one race and the other side of the road is another. And there's like three black people in your neighborhood. Uh, um, and your prom is segregated. And, you know, that's that's the world I grew up in. So I, I know a lot of the shit they say is completely true. It's not shit in the sense that it's wrong. It's just, what do you do with that? And try to like, you know, we have to deal with that as Marxists both to admit that it's real but also have an answer to why that's not going to get you out. Like why just focusing solely on those issues aren't going to get you what you want. And we, we don't, we, we're not very good at doing both. We can do one or the other, but rarely do we do both. And that, in that sense, I think talking about cultural Marxism all the time, is just itself. It, it, so what, <laughs> you know, non-Marxists don't give a shit about that. That's just a critique among ourselves, you know, outside of Marxism, like Academics, nobody knows a lot of the debates we're talking about. It's not like David Harvey's a household name. It's not like people know who Andrew Kleiman is outside of, you know, you know. I mean, maybe, I'm sure that 10,000 people do, but in, and that's a lot of people, but in world terms, that's still nothing. So we have to completely rethink the way we think about this. And so just complaining about cultural Marxism, even if our complaints are legitimate, isn't going to get you anywhere. Man, we've gone all over the place in this conversation. But we have. We need more organizing. Yeah, you just ask me questions and I answer them, and I go crazy. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, literally, no. I mean, the left needs more actual organizing. Yeah, we need to. We need to organize it, but we don't need to just. Uh, again, this is where I'm going to give props to Nick and Alex. We don't need to think we can organize the way we have. It did not work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it has to be structurally fundamental, different organizational forms and emphasis and analysis we have to really figure out like focusing on concepts that bring this back like what does power mean what does you know integrated views of economy and politics and culture mean Um, and then working from those assumptions say okay what would our organization strategies to kind of get us to something like a workers party mean what would that have to do? And there's a couple things you can just throw out of hand right out. One, it can't be a paramilitary militia because, frankly, you know, insurgents can survive uh, invasion, but no modern nuclear armed state's been overthrown <laughs> without without the army already being on board. I mean, Russia's the only example, and it was overthrown by its army and its political class, dissolving itself and reconstituting itself immediately. You know, even though there was, you know, localized pressures leading to that, it was not like that. And even the case of Egypt, like the Egyptian revolution, in quotation marks, and I can't really go too much into this without getting in trouble. The Egyptian revolution was basically allowed to happen, even though there was a lot of suppression. You know, if the full if the full force of the military had gauged against those protesters, it, it wouldn't have been, nothing would have ever happened at all. It would have been Tiananmen Square. Yeah, it, or worse. I mean. 
whatever it would have been that that was the solution it would have been it would have been you know that would have been the that would have been the most positive outcome and it was bad as it was but you know you certainly seem to have separate elements of the state acting differently right the military basically had to be on two minds about itself for that to have happened i mean and it was you you literally might have had stuff like generals like cc that saying oh i could come in and get power off, off the mubarak's you could literally have it like that. You know, uh, can't comment on that. Yes, but okay. uh, yes, you can. You can have any number of things that happen like that. So the idea of of these revolutions happening in a state that's functioning. I mean, you know, you look at the the revolutions in quote unquote Syria and Iraq. Those are either from external war pressures or total internal failure. Or in the case of Syria, both. It's not. These kinds of old thinkings about the way we do revolution, that, that isn't going to work. You're not going to – yes, you will probably need an armed force at some point. But I'm not even sure you need it at the initiation point of winning because the idea that you could – let me put it this way. I think that any successful left revolution probably would lead to a civil war. I'm not. I'm not. In any state that happened. I, I think that's almost inevitable. But the idea that it would happen beforehand – uh, in a group of you know ragtag militias against the state, that only works if you're you know fourth generation warfare only works if your only goal is to survive. Well, in Cuba, it worked. Yeah, it worked against a failing apparatus. Before, you know, they didn't have nuclear arms in a peripheral state that was never that powerful to begin with. But but I'm talking about like you look at say you can think of for example. When you think of fourth generation insurgencies, it works in colonial societies because the people who they're fighting don't have a vested interest in the society anyway. And all you got to do to win is tire the other guy out. But in a civil war in a developed power, it don't yeah, work. It's different to Algeria. The friend, you know, if it happened in the UK, you know, it's not like the English have got somewhere else to go home to. Right. And so that if both sides have to engage in a war of attrition, all you have left is who's going to gun them next, the, the other people down the most. And, uh, and any insurgency, even successful, you know, successful insurgencies have a loss of six to one, at least. So in a civil war like that, in a developed power, could you imagine what the death toll would be? Nobody would support that. And I, I you know, like the, a lot, you know, my, a lot of my snarking at uh, the more, when we talk about revolutionaries people and they think we can just march in with guns, um, and just seize power by force, you know, by direct force with guns. I pretty much look at them and think, like, without the military already being on your side, you're just killing yourself. Yeah, well, the right can do it. You know, the right does it all the time. Yeah, but the right does it because they have the military on their side. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, but like, look at uh, look at what uh, Chavez tried in, in in Venezuela. He essentially tried to get the the military on on his side. Well, which is the only reason Maduro is still alive. But he led a, he led a revolution from from a, a coup, like a left wing coup by by the military. That's so right. I, I I can't remember in history how many times that's happened. Probably not too many times. So like there probably are different types of models, but not that I'm putting forward a left wing. No, coup but I mean the left wing coup mo- the left wing <coughs> coup model still like he. Even though we, and even though they had uh, Chavez had democratic legitimacy, you see the problems they're running into now. The likelihood that that survives ten more years, given its current conditions, is pretty low. I mean, it's not impossible. Well, the main problem there are economic. Chavez government they only got into trouble once you know they really started having problems with their currency system. 
they've got a dual currency system, which is a total joke. And they never bit that bullet earlier on. It's going to probably cause it to fall apart. Double currency and also total develop total dependence on um, commodity rent for Oil social price. programs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, like commodity, if you're Marxist and you understand decline rate of profit, you gotta know that that's stupid. Um, that the, you know you you can use that to get to like maintain power initially, but you can't base everything off of it. You have to immediately diversify. It, it weirdly even the Saudis see that in the way that, and the Russians kind the Russians kind of see that in the way. That, the, the Venezuelans did not. So, you know, and the other thing I, you know, we're getting into now is one of my uh, frustrations with the people who are against political determinism, and I agree with them mostly, but they don't study, <laughs> they don't, often don't study actual politics very much, and so they don't know what's going on in these other countries. I, don't, I think you really have to have a pretty good grounding in material history to really apply this stuff. So, again, complaining about cultural Marxism but not knowing how Venezuela is going is a, a problem. To me, which I guess, you know, what was a critique was said that I just say everyone has to read more books all the time about everything. What was it said? Derek Barnes just wants you to read more books. Forget what it was. It's <laughs> yeah. true, actually. It's not even a false critique. I do. But um, and you can't ever read enough. Um, but you actually have to do stuff. <laughs> so there's a limit to how much you can read. Um, but you do need people to kind of get on board and at least while we're still under capitalism, divide this labor up and actually do the hard work. And um, again, the right's better at that. Yeah, but they've got money. You know, they, they really are. Yeah, but it's not that we don't have money. We don't have their kind of money. But the Mount Pelerin Society really didn't have that much money when it started. It did not. Like I was saying to Alex Cernchek, it was that um, they've got the people in power who they have to convince and who are going to naturally be on their side. You know, it's quite specific to capitalism. It's a capitalist insurgency, you know, as a, you know, which is you can't use it as a model. You can't. You, I mean, honestly, one of the things I would say to Alex, to Alex and Nick, which I haven't, but that like the barring the uh, the military insurgency in third world country element of it, that studying what people like Hezbollah do is actually probably more useful. But they they just they just copied the, the old communist parties. Yeah, they did, but they figured out a way to do it in a in a, in a modern context, which no communist party post nineteen twenty has ever tried, like opening up schools privately, um, opening up alternative hospitals, coming up with your own insurance. But they're also probably doing it in. Are they not totally doing it in in countries where the state doesn't provide great education? Yeah, as well. The, yeah, but the state doesn't provide great education outside of Europe anywhere, including the U.S. in that. But say like in Europe, but you know those private schools that say the Muslim Brotherhood set up, they're not legal in Europe. No, but are they free in Egypt? Say I don't know. Actually, I, I think that, I think they aren't, but they're very cheap. A lot of times, for example, I know in Latin America they would base these things off of having an operation that did earn money, usually grant money or from some international supported board running an international school, and then funneling all some of the money to that to this charity school, using that as a tax write-off, as, an, as something like non-private status, and also educating from it. Like, if you tried to open up a, uh, if you tried to open up a, a charter school in the UK where you taught uh, Marxism <laughs> and communist theory to kids, you know, you'd get shut down. You'd get shut down in the morning. You'd be allowed to teach any kind of religious thing you wanted, but if you tried to teach anything sociological, <laughs> they'd shut you down. Well, yes, you're definitely in the States too, probably, but... That's essentially what the Black Panthers did. 
you know, isn't the Black Panthers did the same model as? They did. They didn't try to replace the public schools, or they tried to supplement it, which would be more the uh, the way I think you could legally go in a developed nation. Because the uh, the thing is, you can't go up against the state. Like at a certain point, you can't care about legality totally, but also you also can't go up against the state directly in that in like that direct of a way. Um, and again, this is where you have to just go back and do brass tacks, thinking about immediate things and. And so, yeah, sure, we need to think our way out of capitalism, maybe. I know I don't totally think that's possible. But we definitely need to start thinking about how to maintain both a short and long-term vision without getting into NGO mind, because that's what normally happens. You start getting into this stuff, people start getting into, they get into their own niche charities, and that's how you lose a lot of people. You get into your own niche charities, and I think that's why, in some ways, Governments have encouraged a lot of these even somewhat radical NGOs. Absolutely. That's why George Soros puts billions of pounds towards these seemingly radical stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, he even like put pounds into supporting uh, BLM for a while, or dollars, for real. I, I Supposedly supporting BLM in the Ferguson, and then he eventually cut off money to it when things got too hot. Yeah, so, so you see a lot of this... I mean, I'm saying that I get that from rumors from people who are actually involved, but I've heard it from multiple sources. I'm sure it if happens. If it's false, I'm sure if it's happens. false, it's false. But I'm almost certain it happens. And I, I, I got anecdotes. I don't have proof, but again, again, it would be very hard to prove a lot of this because people want this stuff off books. But these NGOs, I mean, they, they divide labor so they compete with they compete with each other. They a lot of times to survive have to corporatize their own management structure, just like the unions have. I mean, the unions make a lot of money. Um, off of Stockton events and pay their leadership, you know, six-figure salaries. I mean, it's – so you have to somehow deal with that because what happens right now is those those models get – you get you, – you don't coordinate because you can't and you get stuck in your own little niche and you can't do shit except for going to maybe the Democratic Party and hope that you can pull Bernie Sanders. But even then – like, you know, let's say Bernie Sanders wins the election. It's a possibility he wins the entire U.S. country. It's just bizarre, but it's possible. It's, it's, it's like, according to Nate Silver, even 20% chance of happening, which is way more than it's ever been since maybe like 1914 or something, to have even a kind of sort of semi-socialist, not really, <laughs> you know. Um, but yes, who's really just kind of a, you know, a super left-wing Keynesian. He's not super left wing. He's just a nor- just a new dealer. Super super left wing in the modern, modern Democratic sense. Party parlance. Yeah, but the, the amount of the amount of left wingers in the states who've really bought into this, I mean, even some pretty far left people, has been a little sh- shocking. Personally, I think it's a function of both the crisis, but also of the internet. Right. I think the internet is a very big organizing tool for the left because people are naturally left if i look at all the things that come from my facebook feed from people who i don't who are my friends but i don't know their politics it's all kind of left and getting more left by the day it's it's funny because uh i've said that clickbait social media has proven that what was right-wing dominant for populist media in the 90s has become more and more left liberal i don't know if that's good or bad, because what I've seen... Ha- it could even be, even even going to the stage of left radical for a lot of people who you wouldn't think. Well, yeah. The funny thing about, for example, a lot of the, the white working class in the States is a lot of them are is 
they'll call Obama too liberal, but they would, they're willing to vote for Bernie Sanders because of their economic concerns. And if in lieu of Bernie Sanders, they might vote for Trump. Yeah, and yeah. That, well, seems, that seems insane, but it's, it's definitely the way things are going. Yeah, well, also, they're not black. That's, that's true. Well, Black people aren't going to break with the Democratic Party anytime real soon. And my cynical reason for believing that has to do with the structure of southern states. Um, but I don't want to bore your British listeners with that because that gets really technical and really gross really fast. <laughs> um, and, and again, that's not the black community's fault either. It's just the way that the Democratic Party and segregation was able to dominate both the rural and the cities. The rural Democratic Party um, actually defected to the Republican Party between the 1970s and 1990s and most of the South leaving the cities with the old political machines that these dictatorats set up, still existing, but now run by um, a minority of the black community because the majority of the black community, particularly the male black community, can't vote because of felon laws. So it's hard to say what the black community actually believes because 50% of its men can't vote anyway. So like that structure of the U.S. election, electorate makes it very difficult to talk about what anyone actually believes or what, it, what really represents the opinion of the community because most of the community has no way to express itself. And that's true in all the South, and that's still where the majority of the quote-unquote people of color are. So not, and also not just the black community, also the Hispanic community. So it's very hard to to know. But that said, the people that do have any say and do vote are largely in a democratic machine. And even when they're sympathetic to someone like Bernie Sanders, they're not going to betray their machine because it, 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 it ensures what little bit of local political say they can possibly have. That's something that leftists don't even want to think about a lot of the times in the United States because it's so ugly, but also kind of implicates their side. Um, and I'm not just talking about Democrats, because a lot of the reason that developed was um, betrayals of uh, the labor movement of the black community. So the black community couldn't really have any influence in the unions. They trusted the political machines more, believe it or not, because the political machines could be moved by pure pragmatism and just getting votes. And so those old political machines still exist in the southern cities where the state don't in the rest of the United States. Um, and there's economic reasons for that, too, partly because the South never really – it didn't industrialize really till almost the 60s. It was an agrarian economy, you know, for even some of my lifetime. Not a peasant agrarian economy, but still an agrarian economy. Derek, we're after chewing the cud now for nearly two hours. We should stop. Oh, holy moly. What's wrong? this episode you heard the theme tune the order of the pharaonic jesters by sun ra and his orchestra 
and you're now listening to Matthew E. White with Holy Moly. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Omega.